Uh, today, we have a, uh, a, a real privilege. Um, uh, one of my really longtime friends, uh, and, pa- and, and a, who's a pastor, happens to be a pastor, but he's really a, a friend in the faith. And I've known um, Bo Hughes for a long time. He is the lead pastor of the Village Church in Denton, Texas, north of Dallas. Uh, and uh, he's one of, uh, one of, probably one of the closest uh, people that speaks into my life and, and brings encouragement to me. Uh, we've, I've gotten to see the incredible faith journey that God has had Bo on and all that uh, the Lord has done in him. I've seen the leadership that he's put in him and what it's meant to me as a uh, a fellow leader in the faith, but also just a friend. So glad to have him here. Could you guys help me welcome up Bo Hughes? What's up, dude? Uh, I'm gonna, well, here's what I'm going to do. If you will, grab your Bibles. Everybody turn to, to Psalm 74. Psalm 74. If you didn't come with a Bible, under the chair in front of you, close to you should be a Bible. We want everybody to be able to have the word in their hand. Page 486 in that black Bible there. Um, Psalm 74. I'm just going to read this, and then I'm going to pray uh, over the preaching and the de- declaration of the Word of God and over Bo uh, as he releases this to us. So Psalm 74, Psalm 74, page 486 in, in the Black Bible there. Uh, verse 1. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy uh, has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in the forest of trees and all its carved wood. They broke down with the hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my king, is from of old. Working salvation in the midst of the earth, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence let not the downtrodden turn back and shend your cause. Remember how foolish, how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Father, we come before you right now recognizing our need for you. The voice of the enemy would come against you. You have something louder 
more powerful to say and to speak. I thank you that you've brought a friend of mine, Bo, a pastor to declare your word. But Lord, more than anything, we want your word from your spirit alive in us. That as your word goes forward, would you do what only you can do in transforming us and helping us to see what's right and true. We love you and we honor you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. It's great to be here. What Keith didn't tell you is uh, that he had a significant role in uh, leading me to Christ. Uh, he knew me. He's one of the few people, actually, that uh, I'm still around that knew me before I uh, became a Christian. And he, uh, when I was not a Christian, would take me out often to lunch and share the gospel with me. And uh, I tell people that he kind of acted as a sort of spiritual midwife. Uh, when I got born again, yeah, let that image settle on you. When I got born again, he was there to catch me and, uh, and then sort of raise me up in the faith. And so... Uh, anything good he says about me has been shaped by the Lord in and through him. And uh, it's a joy just to be here. You know, um, I remember when he sent a text message to about two or three of us, maybe, when he uh, had received the news, however the process went, to where the decision had been made that he was coming to be the pastor of this church. And, uh, and one of the brothers that was on the text message thread, his initial response, his immediate response was, well, God must sure love that church if he is sending you and Megan and your family to be up there to lead them. And uh, certainly as a friend, as I've talked to him week in and week out as he's been here, it's been so encouraging about how you have loved him and his family. And so thank you. It's very personal for me to be here. It's very personal for me to have the privilege to just share the gospel with you this morning. And I've been praying for you and with you uh, before I knew you and have hoped that uh, even today, I'd be able to offer something of benefit to your faith and hope and love as we meditate on Psalm 74, which is not a uh, happy, clappy summer verse of sorts uh, or passage of scripture for us uh, this morning. But uh, the heart cry, and this is something we want to think about together this morning, and it connects into even what was just announced about freedom class that'll be going on tonight and throughout the summer months. But the heart cry here of Psalm 74 is this plea for God. It's a song that God's people were singing together, but it was this plea for God to remember his people and to re-express his covenant love. If you heard it there as we read through it, his steadfast, loyal love in the midst of his people's darkness, in the midst of his people's discouragement, in the midst of his people's shame even, this was the heart cry where Asaph writes in the middle of this and he says, do not deliver the soul of your dove, speaking of his people, to the wild beasts. Don't forget the life of your poor forever. He's basically saying, listen, in this darkness we're sitting in, don't let the downtrodden be turned back in shame. And though it may not be immediately obvious to us in this sort of casual reading of Psalm 74, this is a heart cry that this song taps into that is in some form or fashion within every single one of us personally, and it's within, within every single community of God's people, every single church collectively. And uh, when you start thinking about this heart cry, and in particular, the shame of it, 
that is being sort of sung out of, um, you know, in the last decade in the United States, there has been a, uh, we might say like a renewed cultural or even um, social uh, awareness of shame. And this is in thanks large part to a, a University of Houston uh, shame researcher, that sounds like a fun job, uh, named Brene Brown, who maybe you've heard of her, her two TED Talks have been watched over 52 million times as of this morning. And, uh, and you would think that based on the way that people have responded to what she's saying, that human beings are discovering shame for the first time in human history. And uh, uh, Pam Stuckey wrote an article in review of one of Brene Brown's books. And, uh, and she said as much, she said, quote, uh, no one could see the color blue until modern times. That's the title, Stuckey said, of an article that came out in Business Insider earlier this year. She said, I saw the headline when the story came out. And of course I was intrigued. No one could see the color blue. How could that be? She said the article went on to state that, quote, ancient languages didn't have a word for blue, not Greek, not Chinese, not Japanese, not Hebrew. And without a word for the color, there's evidence that they may not have seen the color at all. And then she says the article goes on to then pose the question, do you really see something if you don't have a word for it? She said, when I read Brene Brown's books, when I watch her videos and witness how the people around me react to what she has to say, in some ways, it feels like Brene has done the equivalent of introducing our modern society to the color blue. Her research and work have given us a new vocabulary, a new way to talk with each other about the ideas and feelings and fears that we've all had, but haven't quite known how to articulate, haven't had words or language for. And you read that article, true as that may be, as Christian, we understand that what social scientists like Brown and others are beginning to helpfully uncover and articulate, it's a condition that has impacted humanity from the very beginning of time. Psalm 74 had language for it long before Brene Brown came around. And yet in the Christian perspective and story, shame has always been foundational to, as Christians, our understanding of what has gone wrong with the world and what has gone wrong with the human beings in the world. Though, though human beings were made by God and they were made with God's honor and with God's glory and for God's honor and for God's glory, we have all of us as human beings in light of our sin, in light of our rebellion against God, the God who made us for these purposes, we have as humans been filled with shame. And this shame has nurtured much darkness in our lives. And so we just want to think about that this morning. And, uh, and I want to start here just with a definition of shame so we can think about and actually be on the same page about what we're talking about here. And, uh, and I'll give a couple of different definitions for shame. I'll put them up on the screen here for you to look at. And I promise this is headed to good news, right? I, I promise to so just stay with me. This has headed to explosively good news um, as we think about this together this morning. But um, Brene Brown, we'll just start with her definition since we talked about her just briefly. Uh, she defines shame based on her research uh, as the following, quote, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. 
The intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And she goes on in her books. If you haven't read them, I'll just give you the summary. She basically just says, listen, this is what shame is. We all have it. She says, shame is universal. It's one of the most primitive human emotions that we experience. She actually says in her books, you know, she says, the only people who don't experience shame lack the capacity for empathy and human connection. And so she says, basically, here's your choice. Fess up to experiencing shame or admit that you're a sociopath. And, uh, and she said, you know, quick note, it's the only time that shame actually feels like a good option. I'll choose admitting that I have shame over being a sociopath, right? And so, but she says, we all have shame. This is what it is. We all have shame. We're all afraid. This is what she's found from research to talk about shame. That we all have it. And yet we're all afraid to talk about it. And number three, the less that we talk about shame, the more control it has over our lives. So this is what shame is. We all have it. We're all afraid to talk about it, but the less we talk about it, the more control it has over our lives. And, uh, Another definition in his book called Shame Interrupted, there's a a biblical counselor named Ed Welch who wrote that book. He offers a similar definition for shame, although he anchors his definition, unlike Brown, in scripture and not just research talking to people. And he says this about shame, quote, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, because of something done to you, or because of something associated with you. And you feel humiliated and exposed because of what you did, because of what was done to you, or because of something that's associated with you. And what both Brown and Welch, as well as I think most people that are thought, thinking and they've written about shame, what they highlight again and again and again in different ways from different angles and perspectives is that shame is different than guilt. That there's certainly an overlap between the two, but they are different from one another, both experientially and biblically. And so sort of reducing it down, just simplifying it, the difference between shame and guilt, many have said is this, that guilt is, I did something bad. That's guilt. Shame is, I am bad. Get the difference? I did something bad versus I am bad. So, So when you make a mistake, Um, guilt says what I did was terrible. Shame says I am terrible. Guilt says, right, I failed a test at school. Shame says I'm a failure because I failed a test at school. And so again, there's overlap between the two, but they're different. And in the culture of Israel and really in the ancient Near East, that Psalm 74 was originally written and sung in, as in many cultures today, an honor-shame framework for life was more controlling than a guilt-innocence framework, which is why shame, this might be interesting to some of you, shame is spoken of nearly 10 times as much as guilt in the Bible. 10 times. Because it's coming out of an honor-shame culture. The Bible is saturated with the kind of language that is used in this psalm, and especially at the end of this psalm, because it was written in an honor-shame culture. And yet, even in our own culture today, and maybe especially among younger generations, the experience and the struggle with shame seems to resonate more deeply than the experience and struggle of guilt. And in fact, uh, one writer pointed out that if you, they said, if you talk to people 
under 30 about guilt. In, in my church, I pastor a church that's right in the neighborhood with two large universities. And so we have a lot of people. And, uh, and just anecdotally, I would affirm this. But they said, if you talk to guilt to people about guilt to people under 30, said you often get blank stares. But if you talk about worthlessness, failure, or shame, they feel as if you have deciphered the core of their being because for them, shame is arguably the human problem. And what the Bible clearly teaches and what recent research is only just now sort of beginning to affirm and highlight is that shame is the soil that many of the struggles and many of the weeds of our life are rooted in. So you think about the weeds in our life, the habits in our life, such as anger and rage or hopelessness or depression or addiction or anxiety or despair or violence and aggression, that shame is often, not all the time certainly, but shame is often the soil that these attitudes and behaviors grow out of. And the experience and pain of shame, it is certainly where questions and longings like the ones that uh, were at the beginning of the psalm that we read arise from, where you hear him saying, why God? Why have you rejected us, O God? How long, God, are you going to allow our enemies to mock us? And to mock you, your sanctuary, they burned it to the ground. You're just going to let it lie in ruins forever? How long are you going to let it be? Do you even remember us, God? Do you even see us here? Have you forgotten that these are the kind of questions that come out of an experience and a pain of shame? And yet part of the difficulty with, I think, dealing with shame in our lives and in our culture, as young as our culture is, is that we've not yet developed our, an understanding of shame like the older and I would say maybe less individualistic cultures in the majority world have, which as the article was pointing out earlier, has left us in our culture and even within the church, it's left us with a limited vocabulary to identify shame in our lives, to acknowledge the shame in our lives, and to seek to address it. But even when we don't have the vocabulary, we know what shame is. Because shame first appears to us as an emotion rather than a rational or even a theological category. And maybe some of you can relate to this, but for me, it seems like shame was the first emotion to appear in my life. And uh, just a bit of a testimony of even what Keith was seeing and looking into as he was sharing the gospel with me so many years ago, 20 years ago now, that uh, I became familiar personally with the feeling and really the debilitating experience of shame in my life before I could remember. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm pretty well convinced that shame has been the primary struggle underneath the rest of my struggles for my entire life. But of course, I didn't know this when I was a three-year-old. I didn't even know this when I was a 33-year-old. I'm 37 now. And a part of my story is that when I was three years old, uh, the doctors attempted to put me and actually gave my mom some antidepressant medication. I was three. So I want you to think about this. What would be happening to a three-year-old, and especially a three-year-old in a safe, loving home with two very present and caring parents that would provoke doctors to do that? 
Well, the answer was they were expressions of anxiety and fear and rage and sadness going on in my life that were so out of control. That was a three-year-old, my mom and my dad, but my mom was with me more regularly. She would reflect and say that I would have these, these tantrums. I mean, I had an older brother and, and, they, and they obviously saw kind of how he respond to different things, but they would, they would see these tantrums and these expressions of rage and sadness and anger that were just, they were just beyond normal. I would, I would claw my face. I would scream that I don't want to be alive. I mean, it was, you know, there was all sorts of things that were just horrific that were going on. And uh, certainly as I matured, uh, my struggle emotionally evolved a bit. And yet it was still there. Like even when I got into elementary school, my parents, they, uh, they just left a bottle of Pepto-Bismol is that still around and legal, by the way, Pepto-Bismol? Do people still use Pepto-Pink stuff? Or is it like, have they, anyway, they've gone back like, we should have never been giving people this. But they left the, the pink bottle of Pepto-Bismol uh, at the school and uh, because my stomach hurt every day. And yet then what they eventually came to realize that my stomach hurting wasn't indigestion, it was anxiety. And, uh, and then eventually all this anxiety, all this rage, all this frustration with imperfection, I began to turn that inward, which I think in a lot of cases is what depra- depression actually is. It's anger enraged and disgust turned inward on oneself. And around the age of eight, the doctors and the counselors eventually circled back and finally put that label on my struggle, the label of depression. And that label, as well as the pills and the play therapy and the years of counseling that accompanied it, what it did was it nurtured my fear. It nurtured my feelings of imperfection and unworthiness. It made me feel like my depression and all the symptoms that went with it was who I was, not just a condition of the heart that I was struggling through. And uh, outside of medication and outside of a few methods and practices to try to cope with my fear and anger, which were helpful to some extent, outside of those things, though, I was given no real solution for my shame. No real way to understand it, to acknowledge it, to, to articulate it. I look back now and I can see how naked and how deeply ashamed I felt with no resource to cover myself, with no resource to cover that sense of nakedness and shame. So from on, from age eight on, I sought to find a way to cover my shame, to find worth and value and love. And for me, sports became the safest, easiest avenue to provide me a sense of covering identity. Because what I learned along uh, early on in, in sports is that uh, I could cover the pain, I could cover the darkness of my shame with the honor and the glory and the praise that came with athletic achievement. Now, you can just change the adjective, whatever the achievement might be for you. Maybe it's not athletic, although you look like a bunch of athletes here, you know, Uh, especially you, my brother. Used to be. But athletic achievement. So the more that I excelled, the more that I achieved, the less naked I felt, the less unworthy that I felt, except of course, when I failed or when I lost a game or when I stopped having to play athletics altogether, then my identity, when those things happened, then my identity would recrumble and provide a painful reminder of the shame that was laying underneath and actually even driving my competitiveness, driving my sense of achievement. Uh, and then, uh, Good news, freshman year of college, I met Keith Robinson when I was a high school student and freshman year of college as he started sharing the gospel with me, I became a Christian. 
And yet, even as a Christian at 19, and then as a pastor at 21, I continued to cover my shame with my performance. So the habits that I developed and practiced for 19 years, they didn't just go away when I said, Jesus, you have no rival. It started to go away then because that confession changed everything about my life, but everything didn't change overnight. I had all this muscle memory that I had developed, spiritually speaking. In fact, the Christian life, and especially the Christian ministry, became just another arena for me to achieve in, just another vehicle for me to cover my shame. And like athletics, from a sort of fleshly point of view, I excelled at it at least by the sort of standards of evangelical Christian subculture that I was situated in. And of course, came with that was lots of encouragement, lots of honor. And thus, I really never addressed the shame that was driving my perfectionism, driving my achievement, driving all of those things underneath. And then I got engaged. Somebody's laughing. Hope you're both laughing. Amen. Uh, Uh, I got engaged and I found myself in a role that no matter how hard I tried, no matter how much I manipulated, no matter how much charisma that I tried to bring to the table, I could not excel at. I could not do enough at a soon-to-be husband and my constant and visible inability to excel, to reach the standards that I had set or that had been set together with my fiance, to reach that, to excel, to love and serve her in a way that I felt like was perfect, it uncovered the shame that I had so desperately been trying to hide, even just subconsciously. It's not like I was consciously doing this, but it, it uncovered the shame that had been there my entire life. And so all of those feelings that I felt as a three-year-old, the sadness, the anxiety, the anger, the despair, all of that resurfaced. It's really embarrassing to be a you know, 25-year-old and you know, be walking through emotions that you never dealt with as a three-year-old. It's really humbling. Maybe that's a better word. And I remember in premarital counseling, um, uh, our premarital counselor, he just looked me in the face and uh, we were talking through some of this stuff and the, the, all that was going on. And he just said, bro, you got tons of shame. And I'd never heard that word, or at least remember hearing that word. And, uh, and that was a turning point moment for me about 10 years ago of me identifying shame in my life and acknowledging it for what it is, and then finally beginning to look to God and to his love through Jesus Christ to cover it in ways that no amount of hard work, no amount of achievement, no amount of self-esteem, no amount of affirmation, no amount of money, no amount of anything else could ever cover. And here we are 10 years from that moment, 12 years now, and 18, 20 years after I've become a Christian. And I am still, by the grace of God, by the spirit of God, I'm still retraining the muscle memory in my heart and mind to despise shame in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are still, 20 years later after becoming a Christian, there are still days where it is hard for me to get up out of bed. It's hard for me to move forward. And what I know, especially in a room this size, is that I'm not alone in this struggle, which is why I can get up here and just talk about it so freely, because obviously I understand who I am in Christ more and more, but also because I know I'm not alone, just statistically speaking, in this room. And uh, in fact, uh, a, a psychologist named Kurt Thompson, he's a Christian, he wrote a great book that was called 
uh, is called, it's not like it went away, uh, the soul of shame. And he says this, he says, quote, it, speaking of shame, is everywhere. And there's virtually nothing left untouched by it. From our family at home to the one at church, from the boardroom to the bedroom, from school to work to play, from the art studio to science and technology lab, shame is a primal emotional pigment that colors the images of everything. Our bodies, our marriages and our politics, our successes and failures, our friends and enemies, especially the God of the Bible who may at times feel like both, a friend and an enemy. It starts, and he says this is surprisingly, it ends war, shame does, only to start them again. It fuels injustice and creates our excuses for doing little, if anything, about it. It's a featured tool for motivating students and athletes and employees. It enables us, or spouses, it enables us to conveniently remain separate from those we disagree with and who make us feel uncomfortable while keeping to those who will only tell us what we need to hear. Its presence and activity are undeniable as are our seemingly impotent tactics for addressing it, end quote. Now, thank God you are, have found your way into a church family that is seeking to address it. That is great news. Uh, and yet what I want us to think about as we sort of land the plane here is that the tentacles of shame in one form or another, reach into all of our lives, all of our communities. And one of the reasons that our tactics in the church, to use Thompson's language, have maybe been impotent in addressing our shame is because most of our explanations and descriptions of the gospel, the gospel, that is God's, the good news of what God in his love has done through Jesus Christ to make us one with him, to forgive us of our sins, to bring us into new life, to lead us forever into his presence, that, that our explanations, our descriptions, our songs even about the gospel, about God's love and grace, they have not, and they still do not explicitly touch on how God covers our shame, but only in how God forgives our guilt. And so what that would be like is, uh, I didn't bring it with me, I, you know, uh, does anybody not have a smartphone? Uh, these days. Uh, I, I do. I, I probably shouldn't because I don't use it for what it's helpful. Like, why do you have one? You just make phone calls and listen to your messages. You could do that with like the Razor phone from, uh, from 2002, you know? And uh, Keith makes fun of me all the time. He is technologically uh, skilled. What's the right word here? You're, you, you've savvy. Yes. What was another one? I just want to find some descriptors for him generally now. Savvy, skilled. Uh, I'm inept. And, uh, and he points this out often, uh, sometimes in impatience and frustration when I'm trying to do something on my technology. I'm just not good at it. And I have it. And I've got, you know, it's like I got a handful of apps. I, I talk, I text, I use the few apps. That's it. And sometimes I think about when my phone, it's like how much power that exists in this phone. This thing is, these phones are so powerful. It's crazy to think about it. And yet that's all I do with it. And I render all the power of this phone useless because I don't take part, I don't engage in all of its capabilities. And I chuckle that I've sort of reduced my iPhone so much. And yet the Apostle Paul said that the power, the message of the gospel is the power of God. And yet when we reduce the gospel to good news that only speaks to our guilt, but not also to our shame, we subdue and render functionally useless part of the gospel's transformative power in our lives. 
And of course, in the West, the way that we've thought about the gospel has been primarily, if not exclusively, through the innocence guilt lens. And that's okay. That's, that's not a bad thing. But perhaps the primary way that Christians in the church here in the United States have historically expressed this view of the gospel of Jesus Christ is through the beautiful phrase, justification by faith. You ever heard that phrase? It's okay if you haven't, but justified. It's this word in the Bible that's used a lot. It's really important. It's a courtroom word that is used to, uh, it actually means to be pardoned or declared innocent by a judge. And of course, in the Bible, God is the king. So when we sing about God as king, we're always ever singing as God as judge because a king is a judge and they always go together. And so this language of justification becomes real important because God is the judge who has the ability to pardon or declare innocent. And more likely than not, most of us in this room who are Christians We were told the good news about Jesus through this kind of language or paradigm. We were told the good news that without sacrificing his justice as king and judge, that God has made a way for himself to declare us who stand rightly condemned in his courtroom because of our sin against him, because of our treason against him as king, that he's declared us innocent. He's made a way to stay just as the judge and king, but also declare us innocent. That is crazy. If you understand the treason that we've committed against God through our sin, we we sing that we have no rival, but then there are rivals that we set up. I mean, I think it's part of what Jeremy was trying to lead us in is confessing that and singing it into hope and faith that the Lord would continue to lead us out of that. And so when you think about this, this, this is what God has done. This is the good news. And how has God done this, Christian? How has God remained just while also justifying or declaring innocent, ungodly, and people that are guilty of treason. Well, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, you can go read it later, especially verses 20 to 26, God did this by providing Jesus and presenting Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for our sin and treason. And people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his own life. He shed his own blood in our place for our sins so that God could justify us, so that he could declare us in the right without sacrificing his justice because his right judgment fell on Jesus for our sins. And this is good news. This is why we have forgiveness of sins. It's why we can praise God that our guilt has been washed away. This is gospel indeed. And yet there's more to this good news. So I said, this is going to a good place from Psalm 74, not happy clappy. Here we are. Here's the more to this good news. As good as this news is, the good news doesn't stop there. And that is something we should thank God for because listen, and maybe some of you feel this, when a judge says not guilty and you still feel like a scumbag, that verdict of not guilty doesn't bring much help or hope. He can declare it and you can go, he declared it, but I still feel horrible. I still feel dirty. I still feel ashamed. You might even find the declaration, if you're in that state, a little bit disappointing because at least if you were declared guilty, it would give you a chance to atone for something, right? At least you could go make up for it somehow. Some people might think like that. But praise God, The gospel is not just good news for our guilt. It is good news for our shame. Yes, God has through Jesus' substitutionary death in our place on the cross. He has faithfully dealt with our guilt for what we've done. But he has also dealt with the deep shame that comes from the way that our sin, both our sin and the sin of others against us, has stained who we are. 
Not just what we've done. The gospel deals and speaks to who we are. Through Jesus, our sins are forgiven and our shame, our dishonor, our feelings of unworthiness and unloveliness are covered and dealt with. And family, this is the good news for our shame that the world simply cannot offer. Brene Brown is not offering. She can't offer this good news. The best that the world can do, which is good, it's not bad necessarily, but the best that the world can do is help us to identify and acknowledge our shame. And that is helpful. But the world provides no resource to cover our shame. The best of worldly counsel, and maybe you've received this counsel, And again, I'm not saying this is bad counsel, but the best of worldly counsel is just identify shame and then confess it. Just recognize it and acknowledge it and then confess it. Just share with somebody. And yet, if you identify and then just confess, it still leaves you uncovered. It still leaves you feeling naked and maybe even more so than before you identified it and acknowledged it and shared it, right? And so if you share, you're still there. And the only clothing that our culture can give to us is self-esteem. Self-talk that says you are worthy. Like, will you feel unworthy? Admit it. And then somebody say, no, you are worthy. But friends, apart from Christ, we're not. And deep down, we know it. Deep down, our neighbors know it. That's why they keep achieving. It's why they keep working. It's why they keep spending. It's why they keep building. Because deep down, they are covering over something that they know is there. And they know that they don't have resources for. And so they just keep moving forward without ever slowing down. Because if they slowed down, they would feel the nakedness and there'd be no clothing available. They know it. We know it. And, and regardless of the nice things that people say about us, right? Regardless of self-talk, We know apart from Christ, we need covering. And the gospel, it announces. It is announcing again, God is, this morning to all of us, to myself, this good news that through Jesus, God covers our shame. And he makes us worthy. Through Jesus, God clothes our nakedness with honor. And he recrowns us with the glory that he originally created us with and for as his image bears. And you come all the way back around to Psalm 74 now. And the clear exhortation of Asaph by way of his example in Psalm 74 is not, man, just try not to think about it. Just try not to think about the darkness and the shame that we experience that's surrounding us. Just try not to think about it. Try to cover it up like Adam and Eve did in the garden back with those fig leaves, right? Just, just like I tried to do my whole life. Just, just try not to think about it. No, no, no. The embodiment, the example that Asaph gives us in Psalm 74 is to ask God to come into the darkness and the pain of our shame with us. And what I'm just praying, what I've been praying since before I knew you, uh, is that New River Church uh, Fellowship, just like my own church, will become increasingly a community where it is safe and normal to cry out to God, both collectively 
as a church, but also as individual members personally of this church, that it would be normative in this church family, the culture here would be normative, that in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the shame, that you would cry out to God together to enter into it with you, right? And that as you do, and as you do so in recognition, that God, through his son, has already come into the darkness with you. He has already stepped into your shame with you. The only beloved son of God was, as Psalm 74 talked about, he was delivered to the wild beasts. The only begotten son of God absorbed the roaring and the scoffing and the reviling. He absorbed and endured and experienced the worst shame and the worst dishonor that they could offer an enemy on the cross. Jesus the Christ was willingly cast out of God's presence. He was willingly cast out into utter darkness and silence. And he willingly bore the dishonor and the shame reserved for the enemies of God that talked about here in Psalm 74 so that you and I, who actually were enemies of God because of our treason, we could be brought into God's presence and crowned with covenant love and honor that are reserved for his beloved children, for his dove right? The dove of God became the curse of God so that you and I could become part of the dove of God. That's the gospel of Christianity. And so as we follow Asaph's example and we learn to cry out to God in our darkness and shame, we do so in full awareness that when we're singing to Jesus, our King, we're singing to a judge and a high priest who has already come into the darkness of our shame with us. And for the joy that lay before him, the scriptures say, he came and endured the cross and he despised its shame. And he sat down now as he was raised from the dead. He sat down at the right hand of the father at the throne of God. And even this morning, he sits ever ready to help us as we cry out to him in our darkness and shame. Even this morning. And so the admonition of Psalm 74 is come to him. Come to this God who loves you so much that not only does he know your experience, not only does he know and remember the darkness, do you see us, God? Have you forgotten? No. And I myself has come to experience it for you so that in these dark moments, in these hard things in our lives and our hearts, in these intuitions of our heart where we are tempted to shrink back in fear and shame and anxiety, we know he's with us and he loves us. And the way that that empowers a church, you imagine a church of people who believe that gospel, living it out together in this city. That is a powerful image of a witness that God would bring in and through you as he continues to heal you up and set you free together to follow him faithfully. And so I'm gonna pray and then I don't know what's gonna happen. I'll be excited to see Thanks again for letting me be with you this morning. Lord, we, sorry. Uh, Lord, we, this is good news. And, And I mean, shocking. It's shocking that you talk about these things where we'd be prone to just avoid them. And not only is it shocking that you talk about them, God, it's shocking that you entered into the experience of darkness and shame for us so you could lead us out of it so that we could herald this same good news that you heal us up through to our neighbors and to a world that is groaning to hear this message. And so would you, even this morning in our own lives where 
whether in our parenting, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our workplaces where we just are prone to feel or already feel just not enough. We just feel like failures. We feel unworthy. Maybe it's because of what was said to us this week. Maybe it was something that was horrifically done to us 20 years ago. Lord, will we have shame? Would you begin to just show that to us? Not so that we could sort of just wallow in it and be morbidly introspective, but so that you could heal us and lead us and make us a witness. So even right now, we just pray. We just ask and we'll just give a few moments here for the Spirit of God for you to just minister to us and reveal to us where that might need to happen. Yeah, just even as Bo's speaking, we just stay in this place of prayer. And we're going to just take two minutes to come before the Lord and acknowledge both the guilt and shame and then ask God to come and cover it. So would you just, just in your heart of hearts, just you before the Lord, individually would you just come before me and acknowledge the Lord here's where I've fallen short maybe it was this week maybe it's been this year real 
Jesus, in that place, would you come and cover us right now? Ask him. Lord, cover, remove. We open our hands to say, Lord, we have, we, we do not sit in the seat of shame. We sit in the seat of glory. Made whole and right because we've been made sons and daughters of the Most High God. Given a new identity and a new name. Given hope for the days ahead. We do not sit under the weight of the lie of the enemy, but we hold on to the truth of the power of the good news of Jesus. Would you restore us in joy and peace? gladness in hope we believe you and your words more than we believe the voice of the enemy we believe you and your words more than we feel in our own flesh and we choose today by faith to live out of the covering that you have given to us no shame, no guilt fullness in you something where the enemy has tried to stuff you down, don't leave this room without finding somebody to pray with you. Maybe a friend here, one of our prayer partners, and just asking God to meet you in that place. We don't have to leave this building covered in shame. We can be covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Father, would you bless and keep us. Make your face shine upon us. Be gracious to us. Would you lift up your countenance upon us? Love you guys so much. We'll see you tonight. Freedom Group, if you want to be here, our prayer partners will be down front.